0: Thanks to you for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. In the three o five, your hair looks great, by the way.
1: Live from the yes, I am the uh, the lost BG. The lost yes. BG. that? <laughs> yeah. Got this. I was watching the the BGs documentary, you know, on HBO. Um, I guess a couple months ago, and I was like, shit, I'm turning into Barry Gibb, like slowly but surely, like, over the course of this, <laughs> you know. <laughs>
0: So what's uh, what's work been like during this past year?
1: You know, so last year we did a, a documentary for HBO called 537 Votes um, for the 20th anniversary of the uh, Florida recount in the 2000 Bush v. Gore uh, election, which turned into quite the uh, quite the farce, especially down here in Miami-Dade. It, it's a presidential election that came down to 537 votes in the state of Florida um, for, for people too young to remember, but uh, it was crazy. It was like classic Florida fuckery. Um, It was really almost the dawn of the Florida man, like schtick or genre of news, you know, where just like anything that can go wrong does go wrong in Florida. And many times it has like national and international implications. You know, it was after that, that they just, you know, a year later that you know, the, the 9-11 terrorists were like, took flight training and were chilling in, in Florida. And then, you know, it, it was like every single story seemed to have a Florida connection after that. And people started, you know, it seemed like John Stewart sort of invented the, you know, the Florida man concept, but we wanted to do this doc. And so, um, we started shooting it fortunately in 2019. I say, fortunately, of course, because the fucking zombie apocalypse, you know, started in, what like, now a year ago. Um, and so, we had luckily our last day of our last interview that we had to shoot our last like official day of production I shit you not was Thursday March 12th 2020 and if you remember Friday the 13th was like that was the the day shit like shut down last year and so we just got it in like under the wire and then we we basically finished the entirety of this documentary like this like the way you you and I are are talking right now, which is far from ideal, but we, I had an editor in Alabama, a story producer in LA, uh, motion graphics and animation in Detroit, a sound mixer in New York, a composer elsewhere in Miami. And I was never in the same room with any of these people uh, ever. Uh, and we, we managed to, uh, to get it done and premiere it in October. So it was again, far from ideal, but you know, gets the, Zoom gets the job done, I guess does it really get the job done though. Like are you really is, is
0: is it the same? Because in my experience it's not. Well, of course it's not the same. Like you know, again I mean I mean the experience obviously is not the same, but the end product,
1: the end result. Listen, I'll never know, meaning that like I finish the doc and it's there. You go to HBO Max, you could watch it. And I guess you you tell me. Can you can you tell it was <laughs> that we did it like this? with a bookshelf behind me and a red curtain behind you (laughs) like it's again listen it sucked there's no question that it sucked there's no question i would have much rather have been in the room not to mention you know well you know this is a this is a collaborative process and so the more minds you can get on something and the more eyes you can get on something the better it it becomes and so you know i have two producing partners alfred Spellman and david sipkin who I've known, I mean, collectively my entire life. Dave, I've known since preschool and Alfred, I've known since TV production class in middle school. And so down here in Miami. And so like, that's a brain trust right there, you know? So like, and we don't, (laughs) despite growing up together, we do not agree on, on, well, almost anything, let alone everything. And so when we're in the office together, you know, it's, it's a, it's a creatively invigorating environment. And so I'm with you in that not being there in the office and being able to kind of yell ideas, you know, across the, the room to each other, I think definitely was, it certainly didn't make for a better product. If it, if it diminished the product, I'm not, I, like I said, I'm not sure I'll never, I'll never fully, I'll never know how much better it could have been. I'll put it to you that way. Right. What's the name? How do you pronounce the name of your production company? It's a raconteur. Um, it's, it, it, it's yeah we spell it phonetically r-a-k-o-n-t-u-r but it's it's a french word uh, spelled r-a-c-o-n-t-e-u-r um and uh that means one who tells stories with skill Ooh, i like that so
0: i wanted to ask you i mean to kick this thing off which would be the perfect way to do it would i wanted to ask you about i want to dive into the cocaine cowboys thing hmm. um so what inspired you to do that how did that whole thing start This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Raid Shadow Legends. It's been brought to my attention that a lot of people like to hate on their ads. But guess what? They got a lot of money, they got a cool-ass game, and I don't see y'all paying for this state-of-the-art podcast studio. Shadow Legends has millions of players and dozens of sick-ass characters. When I first opened up this game, I was truly stunned by the graphics and the artistry. And they've just introduced an entirely new playable faction called Shadowkin. As you can see, the Shadowkin are heavily inspired by the mythos of medieval Japan, along with a load of Eastern Asian influences. they got ninjas, samurai, and a whole host of mythical badasses. They've only just arrived, so get ready to meet new members as they arrive in-game. I would highly recommend Yoshi the Drunkard. Rage just passed their two-year anniversary, and this month, they're releasing a new batch of epic and legendary champions, which look pretty amazing. They're also releasing their second version of the Doom Tower, but also two brutal-looking bosses, the Celestial Griffin and the Eternal Dragon. If you want to get a huge head start in Raid, all you got to do is hit the link below, and you'll get a free epic champion, Jotun. 100k silver, 50 gems, and 3 ancient shards. All this treasure will be waiting for you here. These rewards will only be available for the next 30 days and only for new players. So hit the link below, and I'll
1: see you in the game, brother. Short answer is growing up in Miami. I mean, you know, I I grew up in a predominantly Jewish, like, middle working class neighborhood. You know, single family homes. We rode our bikes to, you know, elementary school and middle school. Um, You know, pretty basic kind of neighborhood. Um, And, you know, throughout the 19 or the 70s into the 1980s, which is really when I start to become conscious. I was born in 1978 in Fort Myers. And we moved down to North Miami beach, a city incidentally with beach in its name and no beach in its city limits. Um, you know, that's the story of uh, Florida real estate, you know, it's all hustles and lies that came true. But um, the, we, uh, so I've lived in I'm a native Floridian and a lifelong Miami and, and, but you grow up in even a neighborhood as kind of basic as the one that I grew up in. And you noticed throughout the eighties, every other house had a new toy. These are working people, but there was a Porsche in a driveway. They added, a, you know, they they added an extension or a second story to the house. Everybody had a nice watch. None of these people were in the drug business per se, but everybody benefited from it in some way. It was such an economic boom that it didn't matter what business you were in. You were a jeweler. You were in real estate. You were a car. You know, you sold cars. Um, you you were you sold wine. I mean, like you name a sector. In Miami, and it was, I'll put it this way. Um, Miami in the 1980s, the drug boom, is the only successful real world example of Reagan's trickle down economics at work. It's the only time that that actually worked, that the glut of cash coming into the narco economy trickled down to nearly Everyone, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, the the woman who uh, uh, cuts my hair, she's been in that that racket a while. And she, when Cocaine Cowboys came out, she goes, "Billy, I have to tell you this hilarious story." She said, "Back in the '80s, you know, when you're leaving after your haircut, you know, give her a kiss on the cheek. You put a tip in her pocket, right? You slide the the tip in her pocket. So she would go home and she'd uh, uh, turn her pockets inside out, right, and empty all you know the folded bills and everything." and one day she found a little baggie with white powder in it that one of her clients had slipped in her pocket as a tip she says i was so young and naive at the time she said to a friend she goes what the hell is this and her friend said it's 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 worth more than gold that it's weight in gold she goes that's the best tip you could have gotten all day and there's just everybody has a story like that, who was in Miami in any line, whether you were a cop, a lawyer, or you were cutting people's hair, everybody had a funny or, or bizarre or unfortunately violent or tragic intersection with the drug trade. And so we kind of wanted to look back and, and give some perspective on our childhoods growing up. Cause we didn't know as kids, we didn't know about the drugs, but like, I was aware of the money, like people had money. And I was wondering what the the root of that was, and it really was the the narco economy. So,
0: how did you and your buddies decide, like, hey, we're gonna go do this? We're just gonna. Did you guys just go buy a bunch of cameras and start filming, or did you guys like take the tra- traditional route
1: and try to raise money and do it that way? I was saying, did you guys just go out buy a bunch of cocaine? What did you do? <laughs> you know. I, listen the, the more I, I do these drug documentaries, the more I think I'm in the wrong line of work, you know um so <laughs> um the uh, you know we had just done a, a documentary called Raw Deal a Question of Consent that had premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 01. and at the time we were the youngest filmmakers in in the history of of sundance and the um and the, the only ones from Miami at that time, and everybody was like I, we did. 60 interviews in about five or six days with press from all over the world. It was a pretty high profile documentary. Uh, And it was our first um, that we just decided on a lark to go up to Gainesville, the university of Florida and do um, from, you know, just took off, took a leave of absence from the university of Miami and went up there uh, to cover the story of a, of a, an exotic dancer who had been uh, who had claimed she had been sexually assaulted by some fraternity men at the Delta Chi house uh, at at the uh, UF campus in Gainesville. And so, We get to Sundance and everybody's asking us the last question of every interview was the same. Everybody asks like, um, now that you've made it right, you've made a big splash at Sundance. Are you guys going to move to New York or LA? What are you going to do? And so as obvious as it was to them that we would move to New York or LA, it was just as obvious to us that we were going to go back home to Miami. Um, You know, first, that's why they call it home. It's where you go and you're done with other shit, you know, and then, um, second, um, we always had it in the back of our minds that maybe instead of being three more schmucks peddling our wares in New York or LA, like everybody does, that maybe we could kind of follow a path of like a Kevin Smith in New Jersey, M. Night Shyamalan in Philly, um, you know, uh, 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 uh Rick Linklater, um, you know, Robert Rodriguez in Austin. I mean, you name any of the you know, Spike Lee or Martin Scorsese in New York, filmmakers that you associate. Uh, John Waters in Baltimore, you know, or Barry Levinson in Baltimore. Filmmakers, you associate with their geography and where they're from, because that gives you an identity. It gives you a brand, right? You're the Miami guys, the Miami filmmakers. So we kind of wanted to do that. Now, Raw Deal was a a Florida true crime story, which was definitely our genre, but we wanted a Miami, you know, we thought that Miami, uh, Florida generally and Miami specifically, and you know, this is just, it's an borderline untapped resource of incredible characters and stories and it's an and a never ending well um if 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 you're if you're done telling all the incredible past stories which is impossible there's plenty more in the present and the future to come you know so um we wanted to do that we wanted to tap that resource as nonfiction filmmakers and tell you know Florida fuckery is our genre and that's what we or that's what we wanted our genre to be that was our vision and that was our gamble and so we were looking for a calling card production right like what's going to and we came up with this idea of city made of snow was the uh the working title city made of snow was about the cocaine boom in Miami and the hypothesis that um the the drug trade is and the revenue generated from it is really what built the modern city of uh, of Miami and county of Miami-Dade and so We basically, we went to some friends, we did angel investors originally out of the gate. Um, You know, we needed just enough money to um, do the interviews uh, with the people we had started to forge relationships with, who were um, John Roberts, who was a a cocaine wholesaler at the time, Mickey Monday, who was a cocaine smuggler and trafficker uh, at the time, um, uh, uh, Jorge Rivi Ayala, who was a hitman for Griselda Blanco, La Madrina, the godmother who was in prison in the state of Florida, um, some of the police officers and attorneys. So we just needed to afford to you know, cash flow those interviews. And we did exactly what you said. We, we bought cameras um, and just started started shooting. And then we put together a uh, sizzle reel, which didn't really have a term. It was more just a trailer. I don't know that we called them sizzles back then, but um, and we cut it together and then went out for the finishing funds, which we which was a struggle. But I should say this, because I kind of left this out, and you'll appreciate this. After Sundance, you know, we could get meetings with everybody. You know, we could pitch everybody. Um, people knew who we were and knew our company. And so we pitched Cocaine Cowboys to everybody that we could. Or City Made of Snow, I should say, before we changed the title. And I got to tell you, nobody understood it nobody thought there was any that was that interesting there was any room in the marketplace they said shit like um yeah haven't we already seen this in blow or scarface or miami vice and we're like yeah yeah but this is the documentary like you have to right. remember this is like 15 over almost 20 years ago now so the documentary business is not what it is now, was not what it is now, you know, like it's, it's not the ubiquity, you know, outside of reality TV and reality competition series, there was not every channel had docs on, you had like premium, you know, nonfiction, true crime, that only has happened, that renaissance has only occurred really in the, you know, post cocaine cowboys in the last 20 years. So it was just a tough sell. And as it turned out an impossible sell. So we realized that we were going to have to, you know, get an angel and buy the equipment and just do it do it indie but you know i would say uh, um, limitations breed creativity and along the way you know one of the things we we realized was we needed a name change a title change because maybe maybe city made of snow was just not maybe as a good title for a book but it wasn't maybe sexy enough for a movie and and when we started working on it we really the aesthetic was going to be a cocaine aesthetic i'll put it to you that way I had conversations with everybody, with the DP, with the editor. Eventually, of course, we got the ultimate cocaine cal- uh, cocaine aesthetic composer in Jan Hammer, who did four years of Miami Vice scores. And we just like, um, I wanted to fade to, I wanted to use a dolly in the interviews, which was pretty unprecedented at the time. I can't say with absolute confidence that we were the first to do it. I can say that after we did it, everybody, <laughs> everybody started moving the cameras during Uh, you know, during interviews. Um, And I wanted to fade to white instead of black. I wanted to, I wanted the cuts, like the average feature film has about 1500 cuts over its runtime. Cooking Cowboys has approximately 5,000. You know, I wanted that synth drenched Miami Vice score. So like I said, we worked with Jan Hammer. It was just like, this was the whole, you know, I wanted to shoot with as many cameras as we could afford so we can have that, you know, the, that coverage and, and and be able to maintain that pacing. Um, yeah, we just, and, and then we went out and shot little reenactments or little recreations of shots that we shot on every format. VHS, Super 8, 16 millimeter, 35. We just like, we just, you know, it was like a, it was like a very Oliver Stone-esque kind of a mixed media found footage sort of a, a collage. Yeah. How much money, what was the budget to, to create that? Do you remember what it cost to make that movie? I don't in the end because like, we you know, we made, we raised money kind of as we we needed to on the go, you know, on the on the fly. So that's an Alfred, qu- Alfred, uh, the way we divide up the responsibilities in the company is uh, I handle the creative, Alfred handles the business. And Dave uh, lives in post-production because, you know, oh, wow. the most of the life of a documentary is post-production. You know, you can you can shoot for 10, 20, 30, 40 days, but the second you start rolling, post-production begins. So post-production can be a year or two years or longer on a documentary. So Dave oversees all of that because we have multiple projects going at the same time and who the hell can keep track of all these hard drives? And you yeah. know that's the scariest shit for me is that you know we started. I mean, I was shooting on Super 8 film at, in, in film school at UM, and then we transitioned into Media 100s and Avids, um, and then eventually Final Cut Pro. And 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 and, and um, we it was everything was 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 um, you know tactile. It was like it was physical film. It was physical tapes. Right. We're like here here's the thing. This is my movie right here. Uh, you know, it's on this tape or uh, usually dozens of tapes. But the point is, is that when, when we went to like cards and hard drives, man, to this day, it makes me a little nauseous because like the fact that your footage like doesn't exist, it's all just zeros and ones on a thing that could just, I mean, melt on the table or just break down. Like it's, it's like, it's scary. Cause like you work your ass off on this stuff and it like, it never really there's no kind of physical manifestation of it at any point. It's all just you know, and and that really came into into full view last year when it never really existed. It was always just us kind of communicating like this, and then um, and then hard drives we'd ship, and then we'd wipe. And it's I don't know. It's fucking I don't know. It's scary uh, <laughs> to me that this content doesn't exist anywhere physically. Yeah,
0: yeah, it is. Where did you go to film school? Uh, Miami. Well, I didn't go to film school per
1: se, they had a film department in Miami. Okay. Which is a pretty significant difference. I mean, you look at FSU's film school and it's outstanding. It's like a conservatory. It's a real school. It's not just a department within another school. Um, Film was just a department within the school of communication at the university of Miami. So I triple majored at UM in uh, political science Um, uh, screenwriting because you had to pick a track, you know, was it production, business or screenwriting? So I chose screenwriting because I will tell you the best directing class I ever took, the best editing class I ever took, the best cinematography class I ever took were my screenwriting courses. Because the second you learn the parameters of storytelling and learn the rules so that you can hopefully break them someday and invent your own, that all happened for me in, in screenwriting. And then I sort of self-taught a lot of the other stuff, including editing, because like, again, as soon as you understand the format and the tricks of the trade and the rules of storytelling, you know, you're on your way. That's interesting. I mean, that's, that's amazing.
0: It's rare. I feel like to find people that went through traditional college that have found success on your level in their, in their field. The only other guy I know, or one of the, few other people i know that have gone through that route and got like their degree in the film in the film world is uh my friend rob who graduated from ucf in orlando yeah he went to the film school there and he'd made uh the blair witch project the first one and that was like a crazy hit made a ton of money and and you know he was that was uh i think his first project right out of film school
1: um well i'll tell you the truth um we became successful when we took a leave of absence from school. <laughs> I mean, let me be, let me be perfectly honest. I, I you know, uh, <laughs> so it wasn't so much what we learned in school um, as it was our entrepreneurial and independence uh, spirit as a, as a, certainly I'd have to think the case with, uh, with Rob. I mean, they broke every single rule on the Blair Witch Project. Like every single rule, <laughs> you're, gonna, you're gonna name a rule or something that they would teach you in film school that they did not break with the Blair Witch Project. Um, there's no, there is there's nothing traditional about that, whether it's the story structure, the format, the st- I mean like the, the, the performance, you name it, it, is, it completely, it was the, you know, I had an interesting class at UM about film genres and they taught us the cycle of a film, uh, of a film genre. And at the end of it is like satire or parody and then reinvention. And what was interesting about that is the example that I needed to write a paper, I think. And I, the example I used was the horror genre and the way that Wes Craven, who kind of helped invent the, at that time, the modern horror film genre came back and, killed it with scream like he's like i'm gonna make fun of all of the conventions we're gonna we're gonna parody it we're gonna you know satire and and like you know the the way the movie airplane killed the disaster movie genre of the 70s which were ubiquitous but then airplane put a stake in its heart and scream kind of did it kind of said yeah it became its own franchise but it did it by ruining the, the not ruining you know what i mean burning it down basically you know saying like these are the conventions. We're gonna call ourselves out, virtually break down the fourth wall here, and then what happened? It's over. You can't go and just make another one of those teeny bopper slasher films after Scream because we all know that we all know it's a joke. We know the conventions. So yeah. Blair Witch says we're gonna reinvent the whole fucking thing, and they, and that's what they did. They revived that genre, and what happened? The found footage genre became a thing. of Paranormal Activity and all, um, but then. You started to, it started to come back again into the more traditional stylized horror movies, which had basically been killed. The cycle begins again. And it's funny, that's what we did. We talk about our movie Screwball. That's what I wanted to do with the sports documentary genre. I wanted to do what Wes Craven did, you know, with our, I wanted to like kill it dead, you know, like um because it kind of peaked with oj right i mean you know made in america is like a masterpiece and it's kind of like how do you keep making 30 for 30s after that that's the mic drop i mean it's the first documentary to become an egot i don't know how it won a tony but it won a fucking i don't know like it's it just won everything so it's like we wanted to kind of put a put a stake in the in the heart of the sports the traditional sports doc so we could start it all over again you know you did a ton of 30 for 30s right a ton. I mean, did, um, the, U, the, U part two broke. Um, and then we did a, a 30 for 30 short, um, uh, called a collision course, the murder of Dar- uh, of Don Aronow, uh, the speedboat, uh, guy who was murdered, uh, down here in, uh, in Miami, uh, back in the eighties. But so what's that three and a half. We made like three, three and, and, half. Three and a quarter. That's a ton. I'd, I'd qualify that as a ton. Thanks. Nice. <laughs> Are aren't you working on some, uh, something with a WWE now or. Well, we did, we produced one of these, these A&E biographies that are premiering. I think they're premiering like soon, right? Um, yeah, like in the next couple of weeks or so. Um, we did the one on the ultimate Florida man, Macho Man Randy Savage. Um, <laughs> which by the way, that could have been his name. Florida Man Randy Savage would have been a, a name. He's not from down here, Ooh. but he, he very much became oh, the yeah. consummate Florida man. Uh, and so we produced... Uh, executive produced the um the randy savage uh a w I don't know how how they're branding it but like a e wwe biography kind of a 30 for 30 of uh of wwe superstars.
0: Did you his uh the tree, his memorial of the tree he wrecked into and when, when he died is like five minutes down the road from where I am right now.
1: Oh no and shit. Yeah I've had his brother on this podcast. Oh <laughs> he's a character man yeah. we went to so I was not far from you a couple of years ago when we shot that, I guess in 2019 ish, um, he, um, we went to his place, um, yeah. uh, and, and interviewed Lonnie there. Um, and then went to, we went to the, of course, film B-roll at the tree. I mean, I, I think, you know, he wrecked into it, but I think he was probably dead before he, before he hit the tree. Um, Oh, I thought he died in the hospital afterwards. I mean, he, I guess my point is I don't think it was the accident the crash rather that killed him. I think he, he was having a medical episode. Oh, he was yeah. And so they jumped the median and they were driving into oncoming traffic and, and Randy's widow Lynn to her credit. I mean, quick thinking in the moment while Randy's kind of, I guess, seizing up or whatever, she realized like we could kill someone, we're driving into oncoming traffic. She turned the wheel into the tree in front of the church Basically, oh, yeah, to stop them from, God forbid, taking anybody else out. Um, but I, but Randy was already in, you know, in the midst of a a medical, you know, episode. You know, um, when they jumped the curve and you know uh, the uh, the median rather and went into oncoming traffic. Yeah.
0: Oh my God, man! I watched the uh, the the dark side of the ring thing that Vice did on it. Yeah. That was fucking stunning, man. To hear about just like like all like the the relationship between him and Hulk was insane. It's like all the jealousy, all the, you know, when they would travel and, and, you know, all the fights he would get in with and how he'd be so jealous of his fiance when she would go hang out with Hulk and his wife.
1: And yeah. man, that was he. So we, we interviewed Terry, um, in St. Pete, uh, actually, uh, for, you know, I, I love Tampa. Tampa, Tampa is the Florida of Florida. It um, is. It's real Florida. Miami's not Florida by the way. No.
0: Miami is nothing like any other place in Florida. Miami and Key West are outliers. They're like different
1: countries. Absolutely, yeah. And and they you – know, well, you know what they say in uh, Florida, the further north you go, the further south you are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I like Tampa uh, a lot. And um, the – so I get to spend a lot of time there, obviously. Well, I mean, listen, uh, I think wrestling is the – my friend uh, uh, Mike Lawrence says, wrestling is the Florida of sports, um, you know. <laughs> And Tampa is the Florida of Florida. So it's only appropriate that, you know, wrestling has such a profound uh, presence, you know, in and around uh, Tampa and St. Pete. And so um, we, uh, um, I think we tried to bring a little bit of that Florida flavor and that Tampa, you know, Bay area flavor to the dock. And I, I hopefully you'll see it in a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of the pods, uh, but um Interestingly, oh yeah, we 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 talked to Michael, who was um, Hulk's costume designer back when Hulk was in a band in Tampa, you know, when he was a kid, and then he went on to do Jimi Hendrix, um, all the iconic, whether it was like the cover of magazines or Woodstock, uh, he, he dressed Jimi Hendrix, he dressed a bunch of like um rock and soul acts, he dressed all the pimps of Tampa. This back guy lives in th- here what is it? Yeah, he does. Yeah. Back in the 70s and 80s, he'd be a great interview for you. 70s and 80s, did all the pimps of Tampa. And I said to him, I said, Mike, I said, looking at Randy Savage's costumes, I'm like, it's kind of like cowboy pimp, right? I mean, like a lot. And he he had never thought of it because he just, you get inspiration and you, you try different things on someone to see how it fits and how it uh, you know, reflects the persona. And he's like, yeah, it is kind of cowboy pimp is kind of the, the look of it, you know? And and of course the pimps of Tampa influenced Randy Savage's famous uh, wardrobe. So we get into that, which is probably kind of new information. But what's interesting is that the relationship between, uh, uh, you know, Terry and Linda and uh, uh, Randy and, um, and Elizabeth, all come to a head and are completely really uh, disintegrate in Miami. Um, And (laughs) it happened. Uh, Oh yeah. They were on vacation down here. Down there. Hulk was shooting Mr. Nanny, the movie, Mr. Nanny. And he was shooting nights. And so uh, Linda came with the kids. They stayed at this condo hotel called the jockey club in like the North Miami area. And she invited, uh, Linda, Hulk Hogan's wife invited, uh, ex-wife now, but at the time invites Miss Elizabeth to come down with them to chill. Like we, you know, uh, you know, you can, you can crowd. We have plenty of, we have big apartment, plenty of rooms. You can crash with us. Help me watch the kids. Um, and, um, and so she does. Now what Linda and Hulk didn't know was that randy and elizabeth miss elizabeth were on the outs and that elizabeth was actually leaving randy or running away from randy and so and randy doesn't know this and so they come down and they're at the jockey club terry tells this whole story himself in his own words in the dock, and he's coming home from set shooting nights in the morning and he's noticing that miss elizabeth's bedroom is empty and he's like, where is Miss Elizabeth? And he says to Lindy, he goes, if she's out playing around or whatever, he said, I don't want to get into it with Randy. We need to get her her own hotel room. She can do her own, you know, her own thing. Like, I can't be responsible for whatever is going on. So they get her a hotel room in the building, her own hotel room. And within days, Randy is banging, cop bang, the cop bang. You know the, you know that that FBI at six a.m. on the door, bang. You know, banging. Open on, up, yeah. And, Open up, Elizabeth. Well, good. That's pretty good. And still, <laughs> so, and Terry, Terry answers the door in his in his in his towel, and he is on a rampage. uh, Randy, and he says, "Listen, brother, he's not. She, you know, she's not here. She's got her own room. I don't know." They go down, and apparently. She's in there with the tennis pro from the Jockey Club, which has a whole bunch of like professional tennis courts. And because Miami uh, in the eighties or the early nine in the early nineties, I should say, um, and a ton of cops show up. It is an absolute. I mean, he's ripping the the room apart allegedly, and it's just this fucking. And that was the not only the beginning of the end of their marriage, uh, Miss Elizabeth and Randy, but the beginning of the end of. Uh, the Hulk and and Randy uh, friendship. That's incredible
0: that the real life bled into the theatrics of the actual what happens in the ring and the whole storyline of it. You always wonder how real it is. What's that? The roids probably don't help. No, hell no. (laughs) That makes you so fucking aggro. But so wait, was
1: Elizabeth in the room with the tennis player when Randy came in? That's I think that's what Terry told us. That's that's uh, that's his story. And he's sticking to it. Uh, but I do know I know because my family lived there at the at another building at the time. They remember the scene like the police start. You know, it's not often that like a line of cops, you know, a parade of of cops show up to this to this uh, condo um, development. And so like it was a, it was a memorable event for people who you know, lived in and around there.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's got to be, like, having that level of fame and having that much money. I mean, I don't know how old they were at the time. They had to have been, what, in their 30s, maybe? Yeah, probably I bet... Late 30s, yeah. Well, late she was 30. young.
1: She was a lot younger, Miss Elizabeth.
0: But, like, I feel
1: like it's always worth thinking.
0: And I'm sure that this is something that you understand pretty well, was dealing with, you know, doing all these pieces on athletes and stuff like that. But when you acquire that much money and fame at, at, a, at a, such a young age it's harder to process real life drama or, or relationships or friendships because you don't have real life experience. You just have the experience of being a celebrity living in your own bubble. Everyone's saying yes
1: to you. Um, yeah, you. You get this, I call it Superman syndrome. Like you get it when you, you grow up and people are telling you how great you are and how good you are at something and you achieve, you know, some modicum of, of, or, or some significant fame uh, and financial success it definitely fucks with your head um and and actually and especially for for wrestlers who live in such a an action figure world where they are literally action figures and then they spend the rest of their lives trying to continue to look like their action figure you know physically and aesthetically and everything it's hard when you're kind of out of the spotlight and that's a lot of randy's story when he gets kind of pushed out of the ring at WWE um and winds up, you know, going across town, so to speak, working for the competition. Um, that was that was hard for him, you know. Go, uh, you know, buying up all the just for men at Walgreens to keep his hair and his, you know, his beard. Well, there was no hair, but to keep to keep his beard dark and and just like it's a really interesting struggle that that athletes and especially sports entertainment because like it's it's so much about the aesthetics and the look, you know, and maintaining that physique and everything. Uh, it's hard, I think, psychologically to be kind of to feel like you're being put out to pasture, that your action figure is being dumped in the trash can, so to speak. It's, uh, you know, and, and it's hard. I, I call that spotlight syndrome because you go from Superman to being out of the spotlight and you don't know how to process a lot. You know, we made a documentary, uh, 30 for 30 called Broke, uh, about in part that phenomenon that, like, when, you, when your professional co- uh, sports career is over, which for most athletes, is in their 20s. (laughs) If they're lucky, they're 30s. Or if you're a baseball player, you're 40s, maybe. Um, But like, I mean, in the NFL, the average career is like 3.3 years. And they have the lowest uh, average salaries. Um, They have the highest rate of career ending injuries. Uh, And when you're out, suddenly maybe you, you're at home with a wife and kids. You don't really know <laughs> that well or how well you get along with them. Um, you don't have the team doctor to take care of you anymore. You may start self-medicating, you know, with prescription or recreational drugs and you don't have that health coverage. You don't have that you know, access to those, uh, those resources anymore. And you are not bringing in, you are not generating the revenue you were generating just a short time ago. And you will never generate odds are that amount of revenue ever again, uh in your life. It's it's a tough it's a tough uh 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 axe to uh to bear. Randy was notoriously thrifty though, uh which he apparently learned from his his father, who was known professionally as the miser. Uh in in Oh you mean
0: like gambling. He was a gambler, he was a car shark. He
1: he like had the first dollar he ever made. Like cheap, cheap, cheap. Uh people used to make fun of him. Um and so I think he was Randy was kind of smart with his money not so much cuz he was because the secret to being successful i think or generating money is you don't spend the money while you're making the money you save the money for when you can't make the money for whatever reason you can't make that money anymore cuz usually that kind of largess doesn't last forever you know um so the 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 secret is hold on to it live modestly or oh, what was the line um bart scott told me um, that Steve Bashir taught him. He said, "You can live like a king for a day, or live like a prince forever." So, if you can find a comfortable lifestyle that you can maintain with the money you're generating during your peak, you know, revenue generating years, and you can be set for life. If you start, you know, balling and spending like a baller, you know, you're gonna you're gonna find a way. Even with fifty million dollars or two hundred million dollars, you'll find a way to live paycheck to paycheck, right. and maybe and it's- even get yourself
0: in debt as a lot of these guys do. And with a lot of these slimy money managers and finance people that exist out here that just make a living off off ripping off athletes that are making a lot of money too,
1: it just makes it 10 times harder. But but enough about Florida. Even parents, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Everybody, you listen. Nobody knows how much money you and I make. It doesn't get published in the fucking newspaper. These guys, their salaries are online. I mean, the sports pages are filled with you know, just as many dollar signs as they are statistics, you know, like, you know, like people are interested in that. Can you imagine if you work in an office, if anybody works in an office anymore, where everybody knows how much money everybody else is making, how tense, you know, that would be. That's what, that's what sports is like. It's, it's, it's intense. And so what does that do? That puts a target on your back from everybody on the outside and everybody's there, uh, with their hand out or to take advantage of you. I know a, a, a guy who is a, um, so the NFLPA, um, the Players Association, the union, has a list of what they call like certified financial advisors. And really all that means is you gave the union like two grand, they did a background, check, a cursory background check on you, and they put your, excuse me, your name on their on their website. Problem is the players who go there looking for financial advisors think that these guys are somehow approved, you know, by the union. That's not the case. So I know a guy who went to a, a mixer, a cocktail hour in a, c- a city, not, not in Florida, but uh, it was, I think it was in Texas. And he, it was a mixer for NFLPA certified financial advisors, kind of meet, greet, trade notes, talk about clients. He said, every single person almost to a man and woman in that cocktail hour all they were talking about is how dumb their clients are and how to take advantage of them. okay and he said I left that room I took my name off the off the website because I and I never looked at guys I never wanted to be associated with any of those people again they were basically he, he felt like just a room full of predators. Uh, uh, you know, trying to take advantage of these guys. Here's the thing about athletes. There is a misconception that they are stupid. They are not stupid. They are smart about what they're smart about. Like all of us, right? We know what we know. And we, we maybe, if we're lucky, we know what we don't know, but many of us don't know what we don't know. And that's the problem. Listen, you go try to learn a playbook in the NFL and then go execute that in 3D while a bunch of guys are coming at you trying to murder you. All right. Like, You have to have a little bit of smarts to figure that out. They don't know financial. They're not financially literate. That's not their fault. Most Americans out of college aren't financially literate. And let's be real. When these guys are in college, no one is telling them that their priority needs to be on financial literacy. They're saying You know, you know, take underwater basket weaving and go learn the playbook is what their you know is what their priorities are. So you know, and they're telling them they're good at this one thing and they focus on that one thing. But and that becomes a problem when they discover that they have to pay their taxes, which they you know they don't know anything about. And and it's you know I I think that's why Broke as a thirty for thirty really hit the zeitgeist at that moment. You had LeBron and D Wade and Michael Dick and Magic Johnson tweeting like everybody needs to turn this on right now because it was, I think the only to this day, the only 30 for 30, that was like a call to action where you could say, Oh shit, this is a real problem happening every day. And the most heartening thing about it was obviously it's cool to have LeBron tweeting about your movie, but even cooler. were That's the college athletes Who were tweeting about it. Cause they were like, my favorite tweets, like I'm not going to be in broke part two. Like they took pride in like smart is the new stupid as far Mm -hmm. as spending money was concerned. You know, like I don't need to go buy a $5,000 suit. I'm gonna put that away for my kids for college, you know, or, you know, so I, and I think that that was, that was not, not to say that people aren't still going broke, but I think a lot of, it was like a scared straight thing. You know, it was like a lot of people woke up to the reality that this isn't gonna last forever and they need to set themselves up for their futures. Right. The Antonio
0: Brown story really resonates well with me because he was like recently, if people aren't familiar with him, he was he's now wide receiver for the Bucs. Well, he's unsigned right now, but he played for the Bucks last year. And he was for, with the Steelers before that. And he had this crazy mental breakdown at the end of his career with, after playing with the Steelers. He was drafted by the Steelers. He was like the number one receiver in the NFL. And then a bunch of jealousy and ego clashes happened on the team and he had a big falling out, a bunch of Twitter fights. And everyone hated him. Then there was, like, this, like, uh, threats of abuse and people saying that he raped a girl, one of his trainers. And, and then he just, like, his whole life sort of, like, spiraled out of control. And he, I think he lives in Miami. Um, he
1: now, he's, cer- he's certainly in, in Florida.
0: And and everybody Everybody was throwing in their two cents on how much of an idiot he is, how he doesn't know respect, how, you know, this, that, and the third. And the way, the thing that they're not seeing is that this guy is a kid. He's like, I don't know how old he was at the time. He was like 28 years old, 27 years old. The dude had tens of millions of dollars. He was making like, I think, I could be wrong, but $30 million a year. He's one of the highest paid receivers. And since he was a kid, 10 years old probably, younger than that, in Miami, all he knew was playing football from 10 years old to now 28 years old. And somewhere in that time frame, he made tens of millions of dollars. The kid has no experience in the real world. All he knows is working out, training, and playing football games. How can you expect this kid to have some sort of moral compass You know what I mean? Or for the most part, all NFL players like I experience with people like my extended family and people I know around here. Everyone loves to get riled up about how can they take a knee? How dare them do that and disrespect the flag in our country when like, dude, like these people, first of all, take politics out of it. I don't expect any of those people to know anything about American history. They grew up playing football. Like, that's their job. And for you now to, like, impose all these morals on them, just because they're pro football players and they've been super successful and earned all this money, it's just so hypocritical and bizarre. I'm trying to go
1: back in my head and count – all the cans of worms you just opened over last, <laughs> sorry <laughs> over the last 90 seconds dude there's just there's worms crawling every uh <laughs> that wasn't that
0: wasn't a very well-formulated thought I apologize no
1: no it was a lot of well-formulated thoughts but but uh, I will say that that um listen there's no excuse for abuse if if you know Antonio Brown uh, uh if there are victims of this man like that needs to be Investigated and vetted and figured out, and and people have to, and there has to be consequences for that. I think a lot of people get through um, traumatic childhoods and 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 success without resorting to um, to abuse. So you know, I don't know enough about that to you know to to, to pass judgment uh, on on him. But that's the reality. There's no excuse for abuse, and and uh, the reality is though you are correct in that when you experience a sudden wealth event, it is an extremely disorienting experience. Um, you know, and that's not just for professional athletes. It's for, you, you hear about lottery winners who go crazy and or broke or, you know, people who experience, uh, in, in most cases, even inherited wealth does not survive past the second generation, much past, if at all, past the second generation. It's because the people, uh, you know, people who experience sudden wealth events don't know how to deal with it either financially emotionally psychologically we talked about having the target on your back it it can be an extremely soul crushing uh, and traumatizing experience we all say oh boo hoo these millionaires or whatever but you know until you walk a mile in another person's shoes it's tough to it's tough to be empathetic and i'll tell you i know i know more than one guy more than one professional athlete some of whom said it on camera some of whom said it off camera that they love being bankrupt. They said the phone doesn't ring anymore. I can relax. I'm not paying all these bills that I don't even know who they're for or what they're for. You know, like, you know, once people think you're broke or you file for bankruptcy, which, you know, doesn't necessarily mean you're broke, but you have, you know, you're looking for bankruptcy protection uh, because of your debts. Like they just think, I know one uh, professional football player who's like who took his last like $10 million or something and made like a kamikaze investment. Like they made the least liquid investment they could possibly make. Pardon me, they didn't lose the money, but they put it someplace where they basically knew it's gonna be inaccessible for like 20 years, maybe, you know. I you know, and like they did it on purpose. They did it so that their family and their friends and you know and, and unscrupulous business people would stop preying on them and so they could have a moment's peace. So it's, you know, it's, again, none of us have had that kind of money. So we don't understand what it's like to, to have to deal with that, but it's, it, it's, you know, people who come from nothing and suddenly have it all. It's a, it's a real shock uh, to the, it can be a real shock uh, to the system. And there is no little to no training. Yeah. The, 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 the players associations and unions have some classes or whatever the um you know, Agents can be helpful. Some of them aren't so helpful. Um, colleges don't seem to give a shit, even though they know that like a subset, and it's a small subset, but a, you know, a tiny percentage of this population of student athletes are going to go on to, you know, experience great wealth and success. And they don't really effectively, while they're exploiting their unpaid labor, they don't really effectively prepare them for a future, uh, of, of financial largesse. And so, um, that's that. And if you want to get into the Anthem thing, we could get into the Anthem thing, (laughs) Yeah, but I don't know which, which cans of words. There's so so many, there's so many cans,
0: uh, flopping around, janking around in my head right now. I don't even know which one to open, Uh, but, um,
1: (laughs) I, I, listen, I will say that, uh, uh, you know, I think it's it's not uh, uh, surprising to learn that it, that um, a, a great deal of of uh, the members of a volunteer military come from, uh, uh, you know, uh, come from low income families. You know, we have we have a, a place where a lot of uh, low income people are protecting the rest of uh, the rest of the country uh, in the in the military. So I think you'd be surprised. I think a lot of professional athletes, um, because many of them come from, uh, you know, uh, 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 come from, uh you know, financially struggling uh, uh, families or backgrounds or communities. Uh, I think a lot of them have connections to to people in law enforcement or to people in uh, yeah. in, in the military in, in their family, amongst their family uh, and 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 friends. Um, so I think that there is a, a genuine, um, if not respect, certainly understanding or empathy there. Um, I also think that that again, if you you look into uh, if you look at uh, uh um you know the intent. And Colin Kaepernick's intent—he um, he consulted with someone in the a friend in the military, you know, to say what is the most respectful way uh, uh, to to silently uh, and peacefully protest. Because I think that's become the thing. It's 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 there's no more patriotic expression than speaking truth to power and protesting your government as protected under the first amendment of our of our constitution there's nothing more patriotic than that that is what the military is fighting for to protect our to preserve and protect the constitution and our way of life and that is embodied in the ability of the people i don't care what your ideology is the bil- the ability of the people to peacefully protest the actions of our government and whether you're you're concerned about if you're concerned about the second amendment and being able to defend your home from the tyranny of a big government, then you certainly need to protect the First Amendment um, and the freedom of the press. Because by the way, if you look in the Constitution, the word police never appears, but the press does. That is a constitutionally protected uh, uh, occupation. Um, You have to respect the, the ability of people to not just own guns to protect themselves from the tyranny of their government, but to, respect, to, to uh, uh, respect and defend the ability of people to peacefully protest against the tyranny of their own government. And when you see, I think this is an issue that should really unite the left and the right. When you see law enforcement officers sworn to protect and defend, um, participating on video in extrajudicial killings. Um, when you talk about due process, that is not due process. Police officers are not judge, jury, and executioner. That shouldn't work for anybody. I don't care what color you are, what ideology. That's not how it should work. okay? and if you don't know the difference between a gun and a taser, you probably shouldn't be a law enforcement officer.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't really want to get the whole the whole issue with cops killing people is just like it's such a difficult conversation for me to have. I I feel like I have it all the time. or just with people I know.
1: I also feel like it's an easy conversation to have. And my confusion is how difficult it is because again, conservatives and and liberals alike should be able to come together on the fact that we don't want the government, okay, to have agents with the power to deprive us of life, liberty, and property without any due process, without any accountability, without any, I think that that should be, you want to talk about big government versus small government and government tyranny, it does not get any more tyrannical than local law enforcement turning on its own people. How about local law enforcement turning on our military? That man who was on his way from work, uh, 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 that lieutenant uh, who was on his way from work at a military base, who was attacked, who was assaulted, battered, and tasered, and I'm sorry, pepper sprayed by police officers for crying out loud, in his military uniform for crying out loud. I mean, where is the respect for a military now? You want to take a knee now to protest police abuse of, of, of uh, predominantly people of color, not entirely people of color, but predominantly and, and disproportionately, most importantly, uh, uh, people of color. You know, you see all these videos with white, armed white people, people who drive their car with police officers holding on to the door of the hood, who wind up being taken into custody uh, uh, peacefully. I'm not suggesting that those people should be shot and those white people should be shot and killed by police, but why is it, you know, disproportionately does that occur in the case of people of of color? Listen, you and I are white men in America having this conversation. You know, we kind of won the genetic lottery. We have a lot of, you know, when people look at you, they're making judgment calls about you. You can be a white man with a shaved head and tattoos on your neck. People are judging you you could be Asian, you could be, the first thing people see is what you look like, right? What color, what pigmentation your skin are, what shape your eyes or your face might be, and they're judging you based on that. What's the song in uh, Avenue Q, everyone's a little bit racist? It's because, to be honest, it's the first thing we see, and so we certainly, anybody says, I don't see color, unless you're colorblind, like, we all see color, and we all, we all make certain, you know, we have preconceived notions about people, for better or worse, probably for worse, based on that, and so it definitely at least subconsciously impacts the way we interact and, and treat people. And if people aren't willing to admit that, um, I, I think that that's, uh, that's just bizarre to me. It's surreal.
0: Well, I feel like the biggest comparison I can make is just to like Navy SEALs, Navy SEALs. When you want to be a Navy SEAL, you have to go through buds. You have to spend, you know, all the, all these years going through this grueling training that if it doesn't break you or doesn't kill you, then you can be a Navy SEAL. The, you know, the opposite of that is a prison guard. If, if you're tired working at 7-Eleven, it doesn't take much work to go be a prison guard. You could be a security guard for a week at a club, and it won't be – it's not a very hard process to become a prison guard. I talk to a lot of prisoners on this show, ex-prisoners, and they talk about the people that are prison guards. They hate their lives. They hate their jobs. They're miserable doing what they do. There's no prison guard in this country that – Thoroughly loves their job and is passionate about being a prison guard. I think the next step above that is probably by and large a cop. And there just has to be I don't know. I I don't know what the answer is, but I feel like there just has to be a lot more that goes into being a cop, someone who has the power to end somebody's life,
1: or somebody has the power to decide whether you live and die. Listen, prison guards, that is a tough, shitty job. Oh, yeah. And somebody's got to do it you know and and it's just it's extremely dangerous it's, it's extremely stressful um I I you know I don't I don't think they're uh uh I think it's probably far more dangerous um than being a, a police officer on the street just statistic I mean like you really are, you're oh I I think so I mean a police off being a police officer isn't even one of the top 10 or 20 most dangerous jobs in America I mean sir, um, window washers are much are much higher up on that uh, on that list of deadly of deadly jobs, I think construction workers are too. Um, but like, uh, I, but as far as sheer stress is concerned, I mean, being in a prison, being essentially locked in a prison with potentially violent criminals, I just can't imagine—if not more dangerous, certainly a more stressful uh, environment psychologically. Stressful, mm. and um, and I think probably. But I don't know what the average salaries are, but I think law enforcement officers are probably better compensated also than, than uh, uh, prison guards and prison guards should probably get hazard pay, um, you know, for, for, for a gig like that. Um, And to your point, perhaps more thorough uh, training Um, and psychological training as well. I think that like, you know, to to open up another can of worms, I think PTSD is probably one of the, one of the, um, you know, uh, most ubiquitous, but rarely diagnosed maladies, um, probably in, in, in the history of the world. Uh, you know, people don't want to admit um, that they are suffering from what they perceive as a sort of a mental deficiency or a mental disease. But like a lot, you know, a lot of people suffer from it, sometimes from what we might consider minor incidents. But can you imagine, you know, what some prison guards and police officers see? Uh, some, what tra- some trauma surgeons see every day? I mean, like there's probably a lot of people out there suffering, veterans certainly. I mean, what they, you know, what they see, um, and who, who just suffer in silence and self-medicate. And I mean, look at the suicide rate of, of veterans. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it feels like something that, that if not fixable is at least treatable. And we need to do better. Uh, I think at that for, for people who are in truly dangerous and tra- traumatic jobs like, like these. Yeah. And I think the media makes
0: it worse too. Cause the media just kind of like puts it out there, puts its own spin on it, puts a, a clickbait headline on it and just tries to create outrage and clicks you know what I mean? It's just, it's like I think we're all, think
1: we're all guilty of that. I mean, oh if yeah, I'm definitely guilty of it. <laughs> I think, think you're if we're you listen, we we didn't we, you know we didn't make we didn't uh, you know we didn't invent the game. You know, we're just playing you know, like if we're in a click-based world, it 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 becomes uh, it does it feel a little exploitative? Does it feel like it's not healing divisions in this country? A guilty is charged. I think it's 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 fair to say. Um, you know, a, a, a extreme partisanship is good for business, but not good for the country. I think mm. we can probably all agree on that. By good for business, I mean almost all businesses. Um, I'm talking about uh, the the political fundraising business, right? You know, the lobbying business, the um, the political ad business, the uh, which of course go, goes to the social media business because that's all ad, you know, an ad revenue-generated business model. Whether it's the media business, the podcast business, there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot more attention and clicks and money and potential revenue in in the extremes and in the partisanship than there is in the you know no one's going to see us talk uh, singing you know kumbaya for 2 hours on the, <laughs> on, the, right. on this podcast they're they're going to see us you know trying to debate big ideas from from you know from different sides of things
0: did you see the latest shit with Kevin Durant and Michael Rappaport? How oh, it blew up. Like the DMs? Yeah, he exposed his DMs, and he was talking, Michael Rappaport's like, go help the kids in Brownsville, you piece of shit. And, uh, and then all the talks, the sports talk shows, like Undisputed and all them, they're all talking about it. They even had Michael Rappaport on there. And Michael Rappaport even kind of called himself out. He was just like, look, he's like, yeah, I've been in Hollywood my whole life. I've never, he's the king of shit talk, but he can't handle the shit talk.
1: So- yeah, I it it made made like Kevin Durant. Yeah, Robert's a funny guy. I've been on I've been on his podcast. We had a we had a really good time. Have uh, you really? Yeah, That's yeah, That's hilarious, man. He's a funny motherfucker. He's hilarious. And and a nice guy, a smart it doesn't surprise me that he wound up calling himself out. Because, like, you know, you have to have a little self-awareness, you know, in this game. And I can we all agree that sometimes social media gets out of hand. I mean, can we all agree that sometimes you know, we, we, we don't converse, first of all, it's no place for nuance, number one, in 280 characters or whatever, even a thread, it's no place for nuance, and th- and shit escalates quick, and everybody, it, it becomes a game of one-upsmanship, rather than an opportunity to find common ground, and actually, uh, you know, have a productive, uh, you know, discourse or debate uh, on on something, you know, I think that's the, I think that's Problematic, you know, <laughs> and but good for good for Rappaport for just saying, like, you know, for for, for having some fun with it because, like, you know, I, I there's a lot of times where I like, you know, you go for the easy yo mama joke because you're sitting on the couch and like, who's this asshole tweeting at me about, you know, stupid shit, you know, with the with the with the name and these, you know, fucking number salad afterward, you know, like, who you know, like, who is this, you know, but like, sometimes I wish that you know, I, I would bite my fingers or be a little bit more uh productive but in constructive but sometimes you can't sometimes people are just dicks You know. <laughs> yeah well Rappaport I mean he roasts
0: everybody on his social media he posts shit every single day on his twitter and his instagram roasting the shit out of people and it's hilarious you know that's it is hilarious he's great yeah. at it he's great yeah. that's a that's a tremendous fucking
1: talent he has actually I have a theory it's kind of a funny way it brings it back to uh to savage but like um so I have a theory that what we've seen over like the last 20 years with the hyper extreme partisanship, basically everything in America, whether it's politics, whether it's major league baseball, whether it's, I mean, you name it, podcast, Twitter, everything has become the WWE. It's all like sports entertainment, political entertainment, social justice entertainment, whatever it is, it's like, and some people I think are playing characters or 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 are, um, you know, they have personas that they're kind of putting out there with. I'm kind of one person. I don't have a lot of, like, sometimes I'm a little more aggressive on social media, but otherwise it's just an extension of myself. But I think some people are very, are very different people than they are on, say, Twitter, Fox News, a podcast, whatever, than they are in real life. And that's the the wwe what is it about you go on you go on fox news you're cutting a promo right like well, those democrats ah! you know like right, right. You're, going, you're 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 looking for uh storylines and narratives you're looking uh, and what's better than the uh what's better than a heel turn what's better than you know when a babe when a face be, you know when a good guy becomes a villain or or vice versa those are some of the biggest so some of those are some of the best uh storylines in in professional wrestling. So I think a lot of this has become that storyline, you know, beef generated uh hip hop. I think probably can get some credit for the you know, beef is good for business uh uh world uh, when it doesn't, you know, turn into something more violent, but like to me it's it's all WWE when we made Screwball, which is about Alex Rodriguez and the Biogenesis steroid scandal in Miami. Uh, I learned that quick cuz everybody's like cuz it ends of course like A-Rod is like ostracized right he goes from like one of the highest paid the highest paid baseball player in history to like this cheater this liar he's you know gets this the biggest suspension of all time loses tens of millions of dollars in the process and then retires and he's like kind of back in a ceremonial position on the yankees mentoring young players he's back on broadcasts you know do it and like and there he is posing with manfred the you know the, the commissioner of mlb who like Tried to ostracize. I mean, they, they went at it like this, you know, this, this David and Goliath or almost Goliath versus Goliath kind of battle of the legacies with Bud Sealing, the former commissioner, uh, Rod Manfred, who actually was Sealing's right hand man who oversaw the entire investigation against A-Rod. It was a pretty shady investigation. Uh, By the way, um, you know, well, that's the thing you come down to Florida, you come down to the swamp, you're going to get a little mud on you, you know, like that's just you roll around, you roll around with us, uh, uh, you know, (laughs) a swamp creatures down here you are going to get some mud. But you know, um, what was interesting is that, you know, we end with like, again, their arms around each other, like all is well. And everybody said, like, how did that happen? Like, how did you know, and I said, listen, I said, it's twofold. First of all, it's the new American values. Um, The new American, we used to teach our kids Um, honesty, integrity, the golden rule, do unto others, right, as you'd have done unto you. Somehow it became the message we sent our kids was, it's every man, woman, and child for themselves, lie, cheat, and steal, or do whatever you have to do to get ahead. And that's like, and that seems to be the message, you know. Lie, cheat, and steal, and you could be the the you know uh, the highest paid baseball player of all time. Lie, cheat, and steal, and you could be the the commissioner of Major League Baseball. Lie, cheat, and steal, and you two kids can be president of the United States. I don't think that's a good message for generations of youth that are growing up uh, and will grow up now. Um, but more importantly, what A Rod did was the heel turn, the face turn. He 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 was the heel. And now he was the hero. He was the baby face, you know? And, and so, uh, uh, you know, Rob Manford is the new commissioner of baseball at that time, the Vince McMahon of the operation. He know he's no dummy. He knows, you know, which side is bread's buttered on. He says, Hey, let's bring a rod into the fold. It'll be, if nothing else, it'll be good television, right? It'll be a good storyline. The blogosphere will explode. Ratings will go up. And that's ultimately, that's the goal, right? Is more, more money more eyeballs, more money, more clicks to your point, you know? And and so I think that's, what's happened. Everything has become the WWE instead of, you know, instead of politics, instead of social media, instead of even maybe journalism, it's now entertainment, right? Sports entertainment. Now entertainment is the second word. You almost have to put after everything. So what's, what's Rappaport doing to his credit. He's a comedian. And an actor, like he's not a, you know, he's not a political commentator. He's not running for office or seeking the public trust. He's an entertainer and all things considered, that was pretty entertaining. Uh, I need to, I need to fill in the blank. I didn't get the end of that story with him and Durant, but I mean, I thought what I know about it it was pretty funny.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't know. A lot of people say that it was, or I've heard a couple people say that it could have been him trying to distract everybody ...from the fact that he sued Barstool Sports for defamation of character. Because that looked like the ultimate pussy move. Because... <laughs> okay, so he worked for Barstool for a while... Um, ...as a sports commentator. And... ...Barstool fired him. And then, they, and then he talked some shit about uh, Dave Portnoy... ...the guy who runs Barstool, the president of Barstool... And then Dave Portnoy, who's like the face of Barstool Sports, released a t-shirt with Rappaport's face depicted as a clown. With like a herpy on his chin. And Rappaport sued Barstool for defamation of character. So now you have the king of shit talk who roasts everybody on social media, says the worst, most foul shit about you and your mother on social media, whoever it might be, that dude has no boundaries. Suing somebody for defamation of character for a clown T-shirt that didn't look good. So, and then literally like the next day is when the Kevin Durant beef drop, you know, came out. So I thought that was pretty interesting. You didn't you didn't hear anything about the bar
1: stool stuff? No, I. Now that you mentioned it, I think I might have. I just didn't like yeah. do it. Do a deep dive. I mean, like, listen yeah. again. Sports entertainment blogging right. like even, even the lawsuit sounds like fun, you know, you know what I mean? Like it, it's, hmm. it's, it's like, I don't know. The whole thing just, just plays like um, just plays like television or drama or comedy right. or tragedy, depending on, I guess, how you're, how you yeah. look at it. Um, right. You know, what, what was the, was that um, Mel Brooks's uh, definition of what, what's the difference between tragedy and comedy? Um, tragedy is when I trip and fall and break my face. Comedy is when you trip and fall and break your face, mm. you know? Uh, so <laughs> I don't know, like, I, but again, everything you just described to me sounds like the WWE. <laughs> you oh, know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> You're
0: totally right about that.
1: Yeah. About and, and everything means the, WWE. In a way, what, what we were talking about with the Hulk and Randy beef, where kind of like the, it all spills outside the ring and the line starts to blur between the kind of persona and entertainment versus real life. Or, you know, like, how does this, how does sort of like, Tweef, tw- you know, Twitter beef, how does Tweef kind of, like, spill out into litigation? Like, I mean, I don't know. Listen, it's the reason why you and I still have jobs. It's the reason why there's there's podcasts. You know, the, 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 there's a lot of shit to talk about. There's a lot of shit to make, to make documentaries about, you know? <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I try to stay away from, like, the interpersonal drama on social media between people. I, I, I stay away from that, like the plague. But I don't know. It's interesting that you bring up, like someone's, in, you know, their internet persona or who they are online kind of like spilling over to real life is exactly what we're talking about with WWE and Randy and Hulk. It reminds me of Skip Bayless on Undisputed, how he's like the guy who hates LeBron. Like, that dude is such a pr- fucking piece of shit the way he talks about LeBron. He's such a dick. And, and it's so fucking biased like no matter what it is he's just playing I feel like he's playing this character of like the guy who hates LeBron and props up everybody else who competes against LeBron and I I personally think that it could have been something that he maybe did when he was on ESPN and it worked and then he just leaned into it and then it just sort of like bled into his real life and maybe it's now maybe that's who he really is now
1: um we were talking about Lanny uh Lanny Potho who is Randy Savage uh you know um Macho Man's uh brother And, um, Lanny has a story, um, that he tells, I think it's in the doc. Um, you know, when, first of all, we went out as far and wide as we could to find any video we could even an early, early, early promo with Randy's original voice, his real voice. It was a pain in the ass, but I think we finally dug one up. And it's definitely a different voice. And what Lanny says is that when Randy he was working on it, he came to Lanny for advice. He was working on his voice, his you know, part of his persona, um, to help connect. And so uh when he nailed it, Lanny says very melodramatically, he said, I n- after that moment, I never Heard my brother's real voice ever again. Really, ever again. He was just permanently that character in that in that voice. And and many people say that you know that Randy Savage's life outside the ring very much mirrored you know the drama uh, in and around the ring. You know, on, on camera. Let's say he was you know he was a man perpetually set to 11 on the dial, you know, just like, you know, full steam ahead. And, and, and um, we interviewed Dan Soder for the documentary, who is hilarious. He's an he? actor, degenerate wrestling fan. um, And, you know, he has this great bit at the, I wonder if it made the final cut because it was a little edgy, you know, he talks about how like, you know, I'll I'll be more sensitive about it, but he he does it in a very tasteful and funny way, but it's edgy. But how like the way Randy went out was like the most macho man, Randy Savage way to go out. It was like his final, you know, his final sort of dramatic moment. And Dan uses wrestling terms, which I'm not entirely familiar with, but you know, it, it was a really interesting point that for a man who lived full throttle, like this was like, you know, the most macho man way of like ending a match, you know, or, ending, you know, or, or fading out. Um, And it's not not untrue.
0: Yeah. When you're, when you're revved up to 11, like that all the time, I mean, you gotta be
1: burning the candle at both ends. You're not going to last that long. And and I I think wrestling is, is a, is a sport kind of, I don't know if it's unique to wrestling or, or what the, what the, the comparative stats are to other sports, but it is a sport that seems to have a pretty significant number of early deaths. You know, um, pretty tragic. Miss Elizabeth is one. She was 40, what was she, like in her early to mid-40s when she passed. And, like, you see a lot of – it's wrestling seems to have a a lot of those tragedies. What
0: kind of drugs do you think Randy was on, like, during matches? What kind of shit do you think he took? I mean, he had to be on some sort of fucking speed or – cocaine or well i mean back in the like the 90s late
1: 80s 90s drug trends are cyclical so i think that they were into what the population was into so i don't know that that randy did uh cocaine in the 80s but he lived in florida in the 80s uh and was making money and was partying hard and like you know uh, um I think some of those guys have been a little more candid about their, you know, about their drug use and abuse, but, you know, certainly, um, you know, I, I think it's it, not surprising to learn that, that there were steroids, you know, uh, 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 involved, you know, performance enhancement drugs uh, involved. We get into that uh, uh, later on in the doc. Again, I haven't seen the final cut, so I don't know what ma- did or didn't make uh, the cut. After it comes out, I'm happy to, and I and I if I if I watch it, I'm happy to tell you all the shit, <laughs> whether the deleted scenes are or whatever. But yeah, you know, know. Uh, in the '90s, we interviewed Gorgeous George, uh, his ex girlfriend in the '90s, who who he he dated pretty steadily after Miss Elizabeth, um, and they lived together, um, you know, in 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 Tampa Bay area, and um, she tells us that um, Randy's pouch belt always had ecstasy in it and they didn't make sense. They get a lot of in the nineties. Now I don't, uh, they did a lot of rolling and she said there was at least one occasion. Um, on WCW, I think we, we tried to get some footage where they were rolling on air, like, like, um, for sure. And they had some pretty wild experiences. Like they, they would go out on the beach in St. Pete and, and, uh, and do, uh, ecstasy. And I'm like, it's got to be a thousand degrees. You know, if you're you know, like, first of all, you're out in the Florida sun and second, you're doing ecstasy or by, and she goes, yeah, we got really warm and we went out into the water and there was these guys on the water who were screaming and yelling and waving at us. And we were screaming and yelling and waving back. And then Randy got pissed because he, Randy thought these guys were like flirting with, Uh, with gorgeous George and he got he was always very jealous and so he finally said well well, fuck this and he storms out of the water and is like what the fuck are you guys trying to like get my girl's attention which is ridiculous because he's out there with them you know but he was sometimes irrational and he was rolling let's be you know real so and they're like no dude there was a school of sharks that's why we all came out of the water and they were trying to get their attention to get the fuck out of the water because they were swimming in a school of like of sharks Are we allowed to talk
0: about your project with George,
1: Jorge? I can't.
0: Not at all. Can't. No, not yet.
1: Not yet. I'm on
0: embargo. I'm embargoed, dude. Sorry. Okay. We won't say anything. I promise. We won't say anything more. Yeah. You got to promise me once, uh, once, uh, a hundred thousand people watch this, you promise me you're going to come and do this in person when this whole pandemic thing glazes over.
1: I might even get a haircut if a hundred thousand people watch this.
0: Okay. (laughs) <laughs> you don't need to cut the hair the hair looks good oh god bless you the hair looks good you can keep the hair but you gotta you gotta promise that you'll come here and do one in person because dude, uh I, you, you're the florida you're the Flor like the florida filmmaker i feel like we have like a little niche here of,
1: like we're like the florida man podcast dude any any excuse i can come up and get a uh and get a fake cuban sandwich uh in tampa um, there's
0: some legit cuban food in tampa bro
1: I know, I'm just fucking around. You know, there's a, I don't know if you're familiar with the Cuban sandwich wars between Tampa and Miami. No, I'm not. It's the real thing. So in Tampa, you know, there a lot of people argue about where the Cuban sandwich was invented. Key West, Miami, Tampa. Tampa has a lot of pride in its Cuban sandwiches, as does certainly Miami, as you can imagine. Um, but a lot of Cuban, you know, uh, migrants and immigrants first started to settle in the, in the Tampa area. Uh, and so in Tampa, though, they put Genoa salami on the Cuban sandwiches. Miami, there is no, it's the, we have the Swiss cheese, the ham, the pork, the pickles, the the the, the mustard, sometimes mayo on the toe. In Tampa, it's all that plus salami. And there's a lot of friction about, the, the Cuban sandwich wars between so you can't have uh, salami on a Cuban sandwich. Well, that's what Tampa does, you know, okay. because salami, of course, comes from famously from Genoa, Cuba. Mm. <laughs> no, there's no such thing. So, you know, um, th- th- this is a ser- Google it. Tampa, Miami, Cuban sandwich war. It's it is a real real thing. I am on the front line of that. <laughs> of that. Have you ever been? Have you ever been to Cuba? No, I haven't. Regrettably. Um, but it's, you know, it's kind of like Miami, you know, kind of, yeah, pretty much the same thing as
0: Miami, except it's like, except it's been like frozen in time from what I hear from people that have been there.
1: Yeah. But it's what do they say about the great thing about Miami is it's so close to the United States.
0: I've had a lot of guys on this show who lived through the Coke, the Miami eighties, like the cocaine wars where it was just people dying left and right, you know, more, I think what was the one of the crazy things about your documentary that really hit me was the amount of deaths that were in Miami. There was a crazy st- statistic about the people that died in Miami during like a certain, like that decade.
1: Yeah. Well, not only did, did, you know, homicides peak in about 82, 83 in the city of Miami, but you had an overflow of bodies. Um, and you had uh, burger King who's headquartered in Miami, uh, donated refrigerated trucks to the morgue, so that they could store literally stack dead bodies up. And in that era, uh, there was a year in the early nineteen eighties where upwards of twenty five percent of the bodies in at the Dade County Medical Examiner's office had wounds from automatic gunfire. So they were essentially killed by machine gun fire. Twenty five percent. Of, of, of the corpses. I mean, you had, cra- 1980 was a crazy year because you had this like perfect storm of um, the drug wars, the Mariel boat lift, which people who've seen Scarface know what the Mariel boat lift uh, was. Uh, and then you had um, these riots that broke out after an all white jury acquitted white police officers from Miami, but they, the, the, the case was in Tampa because they got a change of, of a venue because of the, of how high, uh, uh, the emotions were down here. They had beaten a black motorcyclist, an insurance salesman to death at the side of the road, and then tried to cover it up. And they were tried and, and acquitted in Tampa. Um, and, uh, Miami, you burned. Um, 18 people were killed. There was She's like a billion dollars in damage. There, there are some blocks, this is 1980, and there are some neighborhoods and some blocks in those neighborhoods that have never been redeveloped since they were burned down um, in those demonstrations in 1980. Uh, the, Arthur McDuffie was his name. Uh, they were known as the McDuffie riots um, or the McDuffie demonstrations. And um, they, um, so Miami in 1980 was insane. And you had a lot of the, uh, some of the, the people who came over during the Mariel Boatlift Castro famously emptied his prisons and his hospitals and his mental institutions in Cuba and shipped everyone over to Miami. It nearly bankrupted the, the four southern counties of Florida—Monroe, Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach—because there was just no resources. To can you imagine getting 150,000 people, many of whom needed food, shelter, medicine? The kids need school. They uh, healthcare. I mean, like it was an insane uh uh, uh and, and this all happened in less than six months suddenly 150,000 new people uh all you know uh, as a burden on on public resources and so um you know lo- long story even longer um I heard I remember I said everybody in this town who was alive in that era has a story you know oh yeah some of them have several stories but any line of work you were in certainly a lawyer Um, a cop, a journalist, they have great, but everybody. So I knew a guy, a doctor who worked as a trauma surgeon at Jackson Memorial, which is our like ER, our big city, like trauma center. It's where all, you know, uh, we're all major trauma uh, uh, cases go in the city. Um, One night he's working in the ER and he gets a a Marielito, who was a Mariel refugee uh, who was in Miami beach and got into, you know. Some kind of fucking shootout over whatever, um, and uh, he he was shot in a certain spot on his body. I can't remember where, but the doctor, who's bilingual, you know, said to him in Spanish. He said, "Listen, you're very lucky. If that wound, if that a, a, a bullet had hit you just like a few millimeters or centimeters over here, you would have basically you would bled out like right at the scene. You never would have made it to the hospital." Several days later, another Mariel refugee comes into the ER while he's working with a gunshot wound in exactly the same spot where he told the other guy that if you get shot there, you'll die. And the guy bled out and died. He can't prove it. He doesn't know it, but he was almost positive that that was a retaliatory, uh, you know, shooting and murder uh, in, for, the, for the, the, the previous patient uh, that, that he had seen. Um, I smile. It's not funny, but it's, it's fucked up, but it's like this kind of shit happened all the time in that era. So you get a guy like George uh, Jorge, who just, who lived an extraordinary life. And all I will say is, um, certainly a life worth making a documentary uh, about. So George Valdez,
0: who came on my podcast, I saw this story. I saw that he did like one podcast before I had him on here and he lives in Orlando and I was a little bit skeptical of him. I'm not going to lie. When he, when I, before I met him in person and then he pulled up to my podcast in a fucking Rolls Royce ghost. He pulled up to my studio driving a ghost with his <laughs> son. I was like, what the fuck? Or like, so you stashed all your money, obviously, like you had money left over when you went to prison. Like,
1: or did he like, I, I had, I was like, how did you make all this back? No, I, I'm pretty sure, like, listen, I, I don't know that he had no money, but, you know, uh, he was living large. And so, you know, it's like we talked about, you know, broke kids experiencing a sudden, sudden wealth event. This kid was barely in his 20s and he's making, you know, he's he's making tens of millions of dollars a month for crying out loud. So believe me, he found, I'm sure, exciting ways to squander it. Um, And also, you know, a lot of these guys literally buried it or gave it to friends. There was just too much cash, like literally too physically, there was no place to put the money after a while. So a, a lot of it, I think he lost, but he came out, you know, he got a master's. He's very proud of, you know, his education and he became an entrepreneur and he, and he started some businesses and he sold some businesses, legitimate, legitimate businesses. And I think he built himself, you know, I think he felt like I was a kid in Miami during the cocaine boom. I felt it. He was already like working in his account as an accountant. I think he was working at the Federal Reserve Bank. Like, right. he was on a, a, pa- a different path in life, you know, and he knows that now. And he made a choice at the time to go for that easy money. And a lot of it he made. But then he paid quite a dear price. He went to prison tw- uh, three times, if you include Panama, which was a horrific and torturous, literally torturous uh, and traumatizing experience for him. And then went to pr- federal prison twice in the States because um, he got out and, and fucked up again, you know, went right back into the, into the business. Uh, and then he made a decision. He found God and he said, like, I clearly chose the wrong path because I can be, rich and successful and fulfilled. If I do something legitimate, I can be, you know, in a lot of ways, people were sort of guilty by geography. You have to realize that if you were a young kid, especially a young immigrant kid coming to America with, you know, the, 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 mythology that you, you grew up with, with the American dream, right. And you come to America and a bunch of your friends and people, you know, and kids in the neighborhood are in this business and they are rolling, that must be what you think the American dream is. Do you know what I mean? Like you are talking about athletes young and making money. Like, what do they know? What do these kids know? They know right. the American dream and they see everybody around them driving Rolls Royces and driving Porsches and driving Mercedes. And they go, oh, this is the American dream. You come to America, you smuggle or you sell Coke or whatever. And, and you, you're a millionaire. That's what happens, you know? Uh, you know, so I think that they had a warped view of it. But again, young kids, when you're in Miami, it was Miami, we don't have any indigenous industry. You know, um, most of Florida doesn't. We're a factory town. We sell the sun, we sell the Florida dream, we sell tourism and development and real estate growth. Growth is our hustle in the state of Florida. You know? And so that's what you know you see these guys do all these other kids. And there was literally pockets you know, and, 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 and subsets and subcultures within communities where everybody you knew was in some way involved in the business. And so a lot of kids fell into that. That's not to make excuses, but just to sort of understand the perspective in the moment. And listen, you know, he was scared straight. George got it, got a couple wake up calls and, and literally found God and converted and decided that um, there was a way that I can be just as successful and happy and fulfilled doing it legitimately. And that's what I think he, uh, that's what I think bought him that the car you saw, not some of his earlier cars or, or planes, but certainly (laughs) I hope the car that you saw was, was (laughs) legit, was legitimate.
0: No, you're totally right. The geography thing the right place in the right time. If you were in South Florida, anywhere in South Florida during that time, there's a damn good chance that you were involved in that world somehow. Like I had like Manny Puig. You're familiar with who Manny Puig is, the oh, wild boy, yeah. wild guy who does all the um, fucking wrestles alligators and sharks. Yeah. He, I had no idea, but he went to prison for some, for being involved in that world, like smuggling some shit through Florida, like a minor thing, but he was in prison in North Florida for a couple of years. Um, and I had no fucking clue, but he happened to be in, living in South
1: Florida during that time. Listen, Mickey Monday, the you know the 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 smuggler on uh, who we interviewed for Cooking Cowboys, the first one, um, you know, back in the in an era when if you were making thirteen grand, fifteen grand a year, that was like that was an income. Um, you're talking about late seventies, early eighties, right? So, um, he'd have friends who'd come out, say once a month. These are the lowest dudes on the totem pole. They're doing grunt work, manual labor. They're helping unload packages, you know, bundles of Coke off a plane, throwing it into a car or a truck, whatever. The, you know, manual labor for one night a month, let's say. Um, maybe twice a month if they were super busy, but let's for the sake of the math, let's do, let's do one night a month. He would pay those guys $5,000 cash for that one night of work. So that means that some guy making 13 grand a year, 15 grand a year on, on the books as a tax paying citizen has an extra $60,000 cash tax free off the books kicking around that year. And that's only if he works one night a month and he's not even in the drug business. This guy just came out to do manual labor for one night. I mean, that's, that's why I said the trickle down economics that like, that's how that, that happened so the lowest guy in the totem pole is making like four times his legit salary a year in cash tax-free j- just doing this so like you can imagine how much you know <laughs> the guy's actually moving the product we're making so right. my question is this someone comes to you and says hey I'll give you five grand. You know, a buddy of yours will come out, just help us unload. And some of the guys did it just for fun, just to tell their, you know, their kids someday, like I was a pirate. You know what I mean? Like just for the story. But some guys did it on the regular and they made a shit ton uh, of money. And they did I'll, not. I'll buy do drugs. that
0: right now for that amount of money.
1: They did not buy drugs. They did not sell drugs. They did not smuggle drugs. They just did some math. They they moved a pro you know, they moved a bundle of this to the and um, that's not to say they wouldn't have gotten busted, but you know, uh, you you get my point in their head just to rationalize, fuck it. I'm going to go out for one night a month. And, right. Like you said, in 2021 $20, dollars, you would, you know, you would leap at that opportunity and you would, you would rationalize it. You'd say, I'm not in the drug business. I'm not selling drugs. I'm not buying drugs. I'm not smuggling drugs. I'll just go out and ha- do some manual labor for, you know, for one Hell night. Hell yeah. Month. For an extra $60,000? Yeah. Again, I'm not making excuses, but I think it's hard, you know, when you're when you're judging somebody and their and their lifestyle and the and, and the the decisions they've made in their lives, it's hard when you're not in in the moment. You know, I'm trying to be as vivid as I can about it to say like nobody was living your life or my life or anybody else. They were living their own life at a really surreal and dynamic and transitional time. In, an, in, in a unique time in an American city, the worst part about that though is that those were the guys that were getting
0: popped more than anybody. Those were the guys that were getting arrested and going to prison, not the fucking guys at the top making the billions of dollars. It was the pawns of the operation.
1: They worked the, the, the they worked their way to the uh, to the the kingpins of that era eventually. But I, of course, you know that along with the war on drugs in general is a fucking myth. You know, right. um, because you know we were all told that when you know when Pablo Escobar was killed by the DE well that was it right we won we won the war on drugs it's just like come on like you know I mean today I don't know post pandemic but pre-pandemic you know uh, uh, cocaine was um, I think cheaper and almost and and potentially more pure than it has ever been in history and so really yeah and so what does that tell you about like supply and demand it means there's ample supply which has driven the cost down and it's, and, uh, and it's, you know, it, it, they're not stepping on it. I mean, I guess, depending on your dealer, <laughs> they're not stepping on it uh, as much. And, and you can get, you know, you, you, what I'm saying is if the free market teaches us anything, it's that it means that I don't think demand has gone down. I think it's because uh, uh, I think that, that uh, supply is, has uh, re- uh, is ample and that is a failure of the so-called war on drugs. I, uh, believe it or not, have never done cocaine. I've never done ecstasy. I never smoked pot till about, I tried it, I think for the first time in 2017, when I was in Denver, Colorado, um, where it's legal. Um, and, uh, you're, you're, you're not going to believe this, or maybe you, you will believe this. I just got a missed call from George Valdez. While we're Did here. you really? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. But, um, so, uh, I think he also said, I
0: don't remember. Did he say I think he's also told me I could be wrong, but you can verify this. He told me he's never tried cocaine either.
1: Yeah, listen, a lot of a lot of guys in in the sort of the the upper echelons of of that world were not big users. I think a lot of them you know, it was a product that they sold. It was not necessarily something that they, you know, right. it could have been widgets. You know, like you know, in George's case, it started off as bananas. He was a banana importer and a banana transporter. You know, like that was his right. product. So it didn't matter um, uh, to, to them. They weren't necessarily fans. They were, you know, I, I'm I'm going to go out on a limb and say the CEO of McDonald's doesn't eat McDonald's every day. You know, like um, in fact, probably because it's arguably deadlier than cocaine. Uh, I would I would I would think. But um, you know. Uh, uh to everyone who is shoving mcdonald's in their mouth but won't get a vaccine um like, what the fuck are you putting in your body you know i, I love
0: me like, hey i love mcdonald's coffee bro i drink mcdonald's
1: coffee almost every day they have the best coffee dude but i live in miami we have cuban coffee and you live in tampa yeah. cuban coffee is the greatest fucking coffee full stop that's it it's i agree I totally great. agree. um like, I don't know how I'd be conscious right now without it.
0: <laughs> well, uh, going back to the cocaine thing, Adderall is the new cocaine. Everybody does Adderall now. Well, and that's been going on for a while, but that's and like the new well, thing. It's
1: a performance enhancing drug. And, and um, it's funny, like there's a, uh, uh, the percentage of, I think, Major League Baseball players that have waivers to, to use Adderall because their're uh, on their doctor's recommendation is like disproportionate to the general population meaning really? like apparent apparently a lot of baseball players have AD, uh, ADHD which by the way watching baseball gives me ADHD so I don't blame them but <laughs> like but like but what I'm saying is that like that's a performance enhancing drug you know like it totally is you know um well it's I mean, a mental see, mental performance right yeah absolutely but but listen if if you're If your kid doesn't get into Harvard and another kid on on Adderall gets into Harvard, is that cheating? Is that, it's a performance enhancing drug, right? I don't know. I think it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting uh, uh, argument. I do know one of my favorite Onion headlines of all time was um, Adderall receives honorary degree from Harvard Law. Mm, which really speaks, because how do you get through Harvard Law, I guess, without, right. uh, without, th- without bumping those
0: addies, right? Um, right. Well, it's interesting, like, 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 like saying, a lot of people that I know, especially young people that do cocaine regularly, really shocked me. It shocked me just as much the amount of people that do Adderall daily, every single day. Like I was talking to a, a, a girl, I uh, my wife's friend, and she said she's been prescribed Adderall since she was 12, taking it every day of her life.
1: Rice, right, fucking poison. It's a narcotic. It's a controlled substance, for fuck's right. sake.
0: And, not- believe- and, and, and And who the fuck came up with the? I mean, what a great uh, propaganda sales pitch to say Adderall cures ADHD, or if ADHD is
1: even a real thing. Did they just come up with that to sell Adderall? I, first of all, part of the reason why I never tried cocaine is not simply the illegality. Well, <clears throat> I think the expense was probably, (laughs) it was cost, it's cost prohibitive. I don't know how, I think you had a bunch of rich friends in Tampa who can afford cocaine. Um, I guess it's cheaper now than it was when I was, you know, when I, when I was a kid, but like, um, you know, I also, I'm like you, like, you don't strike me as a guy who needs cocaine. I guess nobody needs cocaine, but like, I'm sort of, you know, I'm a caffeine cowboy. That's my drug of choice. And I didn't start drinking until I was 21 years old. That's, that's what a, a straight oh, wow. arrow. I, I was now I've been making up for lost time, mind you, but you know, I, I didn't, <laughs> you know, and I gotta say, when I tried pot, I didn't like it at all. Really? Yeah. The first, like I kept saying, uh, well, I kept saying like, I'd rather be drunk. I'd rather be drunk. I'd Joey rather- Diaz didn't slip you a couple milligrams when you hung out with him. I didn't, li- I didn't like this at all. And I, I remember, I, I remember saying, you know what I said? That? I was, I said it to my cousin who was one of the first marijuana, medical marijuana entrepreneurs out West, you know, out in Colorado, got one of the earliest licenses became, as you can imagine, extremely successful. Um, I said to him when I, I tried it with him as one of his, you know, uh, uh, he uh, from one of his uh, dispensaries uh, when it went wreck. Um, I said, this will never catch on. That's <laughs> So I said to him, this will never catch up. This is in 2017. I said this, this shit will never catch. Up. No one's going to do that. But I will tell you this, went to Chick-fil-A. And I was like, oh, I kind of get it. Like, because that shit tasted good, man. I mean. Oh, yeah. <laughs> smoked you in there? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But I don't know. I, I just like, what so what I met someone. I remember being in New York years ago, many years ago um probably about 15 or so years ago and was having a conversation with a woman and I was like what is happening she is all over the place and I said it to someone I was like what is she okay like this is they're like oh you know she's she just went into went to the bathroom she's high as fuck and I was like holy shit and that's when I realized um I describe it this way. I When 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 people are on cocaine, they start one sentence and they finish another. Yes. And you and I are already like, you know, <laughs> have personal, like you or I, they would like have to scrape us off the roof with a fucking shovel if we did cocaine. Like we would just, you know, we'd be like Len Bias. Our faces would explode. Like if we fucking did, co- like, what would I, what would I do with that? energy? Where would I put that? You know, I don't even, and that scared me. Like I thought like, oh, my heart's just going to explode out of my out of my chest if I if I tried. And I've never been particularly curious uh about it either. And I think part of the reason is, and maybe this is part of the reason why I only smoked in in Colorado from like a, a legit dispensary. Like down here in Miami, who the fuck knows what they're cutting this shit with? I mean, mm. you take ecstasy. God only knows what this what this anonymous person in a cl- you know, like you could be, you could be fucking, you, you got you could be detergent. If you're lucky it's baby powder, but it could be detergent fentanyl like it's just there's just there's so much crazy shit out there there's so many entrepreneurial hustlers Mm -hmm. who are trying to say you know who are trying to you know uh uh, maximize the uh you know their their, uh their profits that they'll cut anything in there that that's that's scary to me like not knowing like what the fuck i just bought from some stranger in a dark club for i don't know
0: yeah no it's for sure and you know obviously legalizing it makes it so much more or making it illegal just makes it 10 times more dangerous.
1: Um, Oh, uh, uh, dangerous. Not only the substance, it it brings in, it brings in everything that prohibition brings in. It brings in the criminality. It brings in the, you know, the money laundering. It brings in, of course, yeah, like no regulation on the ingredients. And so God, Mm -hmm. no, there's no, listen, there's no question about it. The, the, The only, and it's the only way also to effectively create that many new jobs and a new multi-billion-dollar industry overnight, and I think statistically we know from as marijuana, both medical and recreational, is legalized, there's no statistical jump in the number in the in the number of people who use it. Meaning, people who want marijuana, who want to use marijuana, are not being deterred by prohibition. They're still right. finding a way to get it, regardless or irregardless, as we say in Miami. Um, you know, but like. So when you legalize it, it's not like suddenly everybody who's never done pot or does it rushes out to try it or do it all that like, you know, are there going to be a few people who will say, oh, now maybe I'll try, but they're not going to, if that's not a huge number and they don't become regular, you know, customers or users, um, it just doesn't make any sense why. And again, uh, this is sort of a, another one of those issues that I think should really unite the left and right, you know, uh, the conservatives, which is like, you know, which is like, why, why does the government care if I inhale a plant that grows out of the earth that is less dangerous than poison ivy? What do, what does the government care about that? Legalize it, tax it, regulate it, make it safer, create jobs. Dude, I got so pissed when I went to Colorado. I went, when I tried it, I went to a, um, what do they call it? Cannabis cup, right? So I go and I go on a cannabis tour of these dispensaries, the grows, I go to the event, the cannabis cup event. And I'm furious because all of this industry, this whole industry and everything that it represents the marijuana industry for starters, these should all be Florida businesses. It's medicine, tourism, retail, um, convention, business, hotel. It's and like, um, and I was angry because I'm like, we deserve this in our economy, like and and the governor, all the governors, they go to the opening of a Wawa with giant scissors to cut a ribbon that creates what? Listen, I love Wawa. But what does that create? 30 new jobs, 40 new jobs. You want to create. Hundreds of thousands of new jobs and a multi-billion-dollar industry with the stroke of a pen as a governor. OK, you're full of shit. If you're a small government, job creating, yeah, you know, uh, tax cutting, there is no better way to create jobs, create revenue, which can, by the way, reduce our taxes because you'll be making it, you'll be getting it out of the pot, uh, you know, than, than, uh, than opening up Florida with, 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 without any of these bullshit you know, insider, you know, trading kind of restrictions on license. Open it up legitimately, regulate it legitimately, tax it legitimately, and let's get back to work. What is the
0: one biggest thing that's in the way of making that happen in Florida? Do you know? Republicans.
1: I mean, you can't just say, I mean, Republicans and, in general? Yes. I can, How? you know why I can say, because the Republicans have controlled the state legislature for over 20 years. And so that's the short answer. The Democrats are all in. Are there if no r- simple- Republican states that have legal marijuana? You asked No, you asked me about Florida. Right. The Republicans are the problem. I mean, that's it's their, they can do whatever they want in the legislature. They're busy giving tax cuts to uh, to, to corporations. Uh, they're not busy fixing the unemployment website, which we all know we've spent over a hundred million dollars of our money to create a broken unemployment website. Uh, they're they're not. Um, doing anything that's creating any jobs or new industry it's up to them about they control the state of florida meaning if the republicans are on board shit gets done if they're not it doesn't i thought i heard
0: i could be wrong but i thought i heard desantis wanted was like on board to make it recreational and something else was in the way like some sort of lobby you know some sort of i don't know what it
1: was the Republican no. legislature can pass whatever it wants. The Democrats have zero power in the Florida legislature. That's a fact. That's been true for over 20 years. They mm-hmm. want to pass stand your ground laws. They want to gut our our uh, uh, chapter 119 sunshine laws to limit access to public records that belong to us and that we pay for. They do whatever they want to pass. They want to legalize, uh, uh, open up medical marijuana without the onerous ridiculously onerous restrictions that we, that, that, listen, we all voted. When do, when do 60 plus percent of Floridians agree on anything for Christ's sake? We voted to legalize marijuana. We voted to allow convicted felons who do their time and are uh, nonviolent to get the right to, uh, to, to restore the right to vote again. We vote on this shit. And then the Republican legislature, by the way, we can say the legislature is the problem, but look at how they vote. The Republicans are in charge. And if they want to open it up, they they can do it. I would hope that they would do it. So you'd have to ask them, what are the barriers to entry there? If DeSantis is so interested in it, if he'll sign the bill and not veto it, then what's stopping the Republican legislature? When I say Republican legislature, they are in control. The Democrats are irrelevant, 100%. They are a non-entity in the state of Florida since Jeb Bush basically was elected governor in, what, 98. So Mm. the Democrats don't count. Their votes don't count in the Florida legislature, okay? Like, you know, they just don't. Um, if wow. you want to pass bills, you caucus with Republicans. Those motherfucking Republicans, man. Fuck.
0: Why can't we right. get past Republican Democrat? Why can't we get past these stupid, these right. stupid labels let's, that let's fucking just have to American. go one?
1: Yeah, I am, I'm Every,
0: Everything's got to be binary. It's ridiculous.
1: It's stupid. It do- And it doesn't get anything done for if you're just a – if you're just an American citizen, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, nothing is getting done for you because of the WWE match because right. of this political theater um, and, and this policy, which by the way, doesn't make a lick of sense because you would not walk into an ice cream parlor that had any less than 20 or 30 flavors to choose from. You're only going to get one or two of them, but you were Americans. We're bigger is better. We like the options, Right why do we accept two political parties? Why is that a thing? Yeah, I like it. It makes absolutely no sense to me. And of course, there's no better way to create partisanship than drawing one line and say, pick a side. Like, it's just, it's gross. And more, most importantly, it doesn't get anything done for any of us. But listen, they fundraise like a motherfucker. I gotta tell you. They, oh, yeah. They, they, I mean, they, they, you know, every time every time they, the crazier shit you say, the more divisive you are, the more you stake a claim, you know, to an extreme position, money floods into yokel races and to, you know, local Congress people, like it floods in from all over the country or the world. If you go on TV and say some crazy shit, it just does.
0: Oh, my God. It's like we're, we're sitting on a speeding bullet. We don't know where it's going, where
1: it's going to land. It's fucking crazy, man. Short answer is we're fucked, but but what we have to do is we have to stop. We have to start electing better people, point blank. That's not a, that's a bipartisan statement. We need to start electing better people, which means that we need to go into our communities and find good people and encourage them to run. Because usually it's the shittiest people who are running for office, you know, and it becomes a best of the worst competition, you know? I, I think the silver
0: lining with the whole, with the internet is that that's going to help that happen. It's going to help us be able to find and, and it, you know what I mean. You could be a piece of shit and run for office, and no one knows anything about you. You can hide the skeletons in your closet, but with the internet, not necessarily. But the problem, people are going to. F-
1: but that's the problem. It's like people love like it's it's like the WWE. People love a villain. Their action figures, their merch sells better. It's entertainment.
0: They're- yeah, look at Trump, man.
1: Listen, I, I I see just as many Decepticon logo shirts as I do auto, Autobot shirts. You know what I you know so like you know people you know people like the villains and, and then when you get into that that level of partisanship, you have to defend your team. Listen, people, all due respect to Tampa, um, people will defend Tom Brady cheating or not che- just because you're on his team. But it's not just about winning and losing. It is about how you play the game, especially in politics. Politics is not sports. You know, we need to judge people. It's not just like the Republicans have got to win or the Democrats have got to win. If Democrats do bad shit, Democrats got to call them out. If Republicans do bad shit, Republicans have to call them out. There needs to be objective truth. We all need to be able to agree on a certain set of facts. And that's the biggest problem is this kind of post-fact, alternate fact era. Right. You do need to agree that, like, there's a line between right and wrong. There are things that we can all agree are crimes or not crimes. There are things we can agree that the sky is blue right now, or it is raining, or it is not raining outside. We have to be able to agree on a certain... But if we cannot even agree on a basic set of, of you know, givens in this theorem, like, we're just... We're, we're totally, totally fucked. So that's the problem. Is that like? Is that like? You have to say it doesn't matter what crimes a Republican is committed or a Democrat is committed. I'm going to support them and and completely warp my entire set of ideology politically, morally, ethically to defend this person because they're on my team. It's like fuck that. No, it's not throwing them under the bus. It's saying. We expect better of our people. We expect better of our elected officials and our public officials. We expect better of our leaders. Like, it doesn't matter what party affiliation you have. You need to just, call. you see bullshit, you got to call it out. Right. Yeah.
0: No, everybody's entitled to their own facts. It's ridiculous.
1: You can't, you, we can't function in a world like that. That's, mm. that's impossible. You can have a different, we can have different opinions. We can say, we, we agree on the problems, but we have different ways to, to arrive at solutions. We can't say the facts are different. We can't do that because then if we don't exist in these United States, if we're not at least united in a reality, and then we can disagree and debate and vote on how to solve these issues and these challenges. Instead, we just get caught up in, in the WrestleMania.
0: Well, I want to respect your time, Billy. We've been going for two hours. I know you said you had a two-hour cut off and tell our listeners and our viewers where they can find all your stuff and uh, follow you and whatnot.
1: Yeah. Everybody was thinking like, I didn't realize the, uh, the lead singer of smashing pumpkins had that much hair. Uh, my name is Billy Corbin C O R B E N. And you can find me uh, at Billy Corbin again, C O R B E N on Twitter and Instagram CocaineCowboys.com is our company tours website. Um, yeah. I get a lot of, so um, Billy Corbin, Actually, I, I don't know if he was like an early investor or early adopter to Twitter, but he got at Billy um, on Twitter. So he's at Billy. And so when people start to enter, I guess, at B-I-L-L-Y-C-O-R, like looking for Billy Corrigan, they don't realize that it's just at Billy. So I I guess it autofills like my name in. And so I get tweets for Billy Corrigan like all the time. And like people upset about like impact wrestling shit or like stuff. I like on Sundays, like back and when he was involved in wrestling, I was getting funny tweets about about that. So it's Billy Corbin at Billy Corbin, C O R B E N, uh, on Twitter and, and Instagram and uh, cocainecowboys.com. So uh, hit me up.